The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right, y'all ready for this? That's good. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 17. Continuing in our journey here, we've got just uh, this week and next week, and in our uh, series here called God of Glory through these first 18 chapters of Exodus. And just so you know, the big picture for those of us who love to study the Bible and things, Exodus really breaks into two sections. The first uh, theme being God's deliverance in chapters 1 to 18, and then the second half of the book in chapters 19 through 40 is all about God's presence and living in His presence. And so uh, as the Ten Commandments come and the Golden Calf scenario and, and and uh, the tabernacle and all the instructions and the laws. Really, that is instructions for the people of Israel uh, to live in God's presence. And so we're not going to get there yet, Lord willing. That'll be uh, about this time next year. Um, but we'll take a break after next week. And uh, we have a few other series that we'll get into as we uh, jump into our third year anniversary and things. But for this morning, where are we? Exodus. 17. That's good. You're paying attention. All right. There we go. We're in Exodus 17. And really, as we get into here, we are again. We're at a familiar scene in, in the Bible. Uh, and really a familiar scene if you've been working with us chapter by chapter through the, the book of Exodus. If you're a guest with us today, as you uh, just maybe go back and, and uh, read through these earlier chapters, or if uh, you listened on a line to the messages, you'll see that this is a familiar scene. God's people are facing some threats. Multiple threats, uh, to be exact. They're, they're in a crisis yet again. Their faith is being squeezed. They're asking, will God come through uh, uh, again? And this seems to be the case in every chapter, doesn't it? It seems like every time, every uh, turn we take with the Israelites here, uh, they are at another crisis point. This maybe is familiar, a familiar scene in your own life. Uh, especially in, in this season. It seems like every week, God's people face a, another threat. If not here, then somewhere around the globe. It seems like every Monday, there's a new national crisis. It seems like uh, where there's another threat here, where uh, before the dust is settled with one issue, there's another issue popping up. Before we've had time to adapt to uh, all the changes that are uh, supposedly necessary, then we're having to adapt some more. And in every season, your faith is being squeezed. What is, will God come through? And it can feel like life is on repeat. Saying the same things over and over and over. And as we come to the Bible, we come back to the same biblical convictions, the same biblical solutions in each scenario. But for the Israelites here, as the story has unfolded, the greatest work of their deliverance has already happened. They've been set free from the oppressive slavery of the Egyptians. They were delivered from the Red Sea. And then as we saw last week, now this, the, the hard work really of their sanctification has set in. The hard work of becoming holy, of living like God's people, of living like free people. And where did God go right last week? I mean, I don't know about you, but it, it, like every day the message was so applicational last week, right? What did God go after first? Like three days after the Red Sea and he goes after their grumbling goes after our, our propensities to complain and our propensities to to quarrel and and the work is continuing now just three days after that their sanctification uh, is is now uh, at, on uh, in full mode here with the Lord 
And it is continuing even in our chapter today as the Israelites again face two familiar foes. No water and people that want to kill them. Road they've already been down. Road that we already saw last week. They need water. They're thirsty. And people want to wipe them out. And so as we'll get to read here, here's the really the big point. What God is, is showing us this morning as we get into Exodus 17, it's this. God's power is proven over and over. We've seen this every single chapter in the book of, in the book of Exodus. God's power has been proven. There is none that can stand before him. For the Israelites, God has never failed them yet. I think as we look at our own life and our own circumstances... And we too, with equal conviction, can say that God has never failed us yet. His power has been proven over and over and over. And while they are being squeezed, yes, once again, guess what? God shows up once again. These truths of God is near and God is able are demonstrated once again. His power proven. These are two solid rocks, really, that our faith stands upon, that God is near and God is able. In your life right now, whatever situation you find yourself in, in your home, in work, amongst your friends, God is near and God is able. His power has been proven over and over and over again. And so for the Israelites here, who when we left off last week, they were camping in the wilderness of sin. Now, remember that. That's not sin is the way that we think about it. Like, wait, were they like sinning in the wilderness? No, it's just a derivative of Sinai. They're there in the Sinai Peninsula, just uh, south of uh, Israel. But for them, they're camping in the wilderness. They're getting their breakfast and their dinner uh, daily from the Lord. And they face these two threats. But guess what was still true for them? Two threats, but two uh, more powerful truths. God is near and God is able. His power would be proven once again. And so look with me here at Exodus 17. And as we read this first section, here's really the the takeaway. Here's what we learned, that my situation is nothing new to the Lord. You're taking notes here. uh, Write this down, that my situation is nothing new to the Lord. Look at Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read our passage for us. It says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word for God's people. Can you imagine now, as the people have left, or they're in the, they're in the wilderness and they're about to leave, but can you imagine the logistics of coordinating the movement of some two to three million people? 
I mean, we have trouble like just getting two to three little humans out of our, our house in the morning for church, right? All the packing and food and snacks and diapers or other things that we need uh, to get out of the house in the morning. And so imagine here with me the logistics here as they leave the wilderness in stages and as they begin to head closer and closer, a step at a time towards the promised land. And we're told that they're camping at Rephidim. It's, a, it's near the Mount Horeb it's, or Mount Sinai, two names for the same mount here as it's re, uh, referred to. And so they're likely there on the south side of the mountain. And their arrival, mind you, their arrival is a fulfillment of God's promise to them already. What we're seeing here is God's active fulfillment of a word that he gave to Moses way back in Exodus chapter 3. Turn there with me. Just go back a few pages in your Bible because I want you to see this. As you're thinking, and maybe you've been with us all summer and, and uh, you know this story, but what happens in Exodus chapter 3? What significant event? Some of you are already there. It's when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. That's right. He's, he had left. He's, uh, he's uh, tending to his flock. He's a shepherd. And as he's there in the wilderness, he comes to this Mount Horeb, we're told in verse 1. And then this bush comes and God speaks to him and God reveals himself, his personal name as Yahweh. I am that I am. And before God does that, and uh, look at verse 11 in chapter 3 here. Uh, well, just so you know, like the, the background here is the Lord had told Moses, you're going to take the people of Israel out. You're going to deliver them from the, uh, their bondage to Pharaoh and in Egypt, and you're going to lead them out. And Moses says to them in verse 11, he's like, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Yeah, Moses knows his uh, insufficiency to do the task. He's just a shepherd. He's actually a wanted convict for murder. He is nothing. Who is uh, he to go and approach Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in all the world at that time, and say, hey, uh, I'm going to take you know, some two to three million people. I'm going to take out your whole workforce out of here. He's like, who am I to do that? And God makes this promise in verse 12. He says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Which mountain is this? It's in verse 1 there. It's Mount Horeb. Now fast forward to Exodus 17, the chapter that we just read. Where are they at? Horeb. And who is with them? The Lord is with them. Church, isn't this so glorious to see just a little glimpse of God coming through on his word? But saying that he would do it, and he's now uh, come through it. The, the, you know, God has been with them and been faithful every step of the way. Think, just think, just for a moment, all that has happened since the time that the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush to our time now. All those judgments, all the, the, the Passover, the, the, the journey out, the Red Sea rescue, and all that has happened in every step of the way, God has proven himself faithful. His power has been demonstrated over and over. And so what we should get to chapter 17, and this should be like cause for celebration, right? Like, woohoo! But they're thirsty. They're, 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 they're very thirsty, again, actually. We saw last week, they're thirsty, and there's a lot of us. And so when we're back in Exodus 17, the people are very cool-headed. They, they start working together and finding solutions on how to overcome this problem, and they work really well together, don't they? Is that actually what happened? This is a little bit of my dry humor and my sarcasm. coming. That's not what happens at all, does it? 
That's exactly not what happened. It looks like actually the inability to be reasonable and logical and to work together for solutions isn't just a new problem for our day as well. It's part and parcel of our sinful nature and, our, uh, and, and needing the grace of God to come through in all of these situations. As a matter of fact, they quarrel with Moses, don't they? It's more aggressive word. What started as just grumbling and murmuring in the previous chapter has now become way more aggressive. Now they are fighting with Moses and they begin to demand of him. It says, give us water to drink. And then they start to blame him in verse 3. Why did you, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and then to, you know, the, and to kill our kids and our livestock out here with thirst? You ever been in a work meeting like this? Something uh, uh, high stress, uh, a solution that seems uh, impossible. And then the demands start happening and blame starts happening. As we read this, it sounds like you know, a political town hall meeting of our day. People demanding and people blaming our sinful nature coming out and the inability to reason and to think logically. But Moses... Keeping his eyes on the Lord, he sees things pretty clearly. He, he calls it uh, to the heart. He's saying, why are you quarreling with me? Uh, the Lord has led us out here. Why are you testing the Lord? Remember, it is the Lord who had been testing them by blessing them. And then he begins by praying in verse 4. He takes the solution to the Lord. God, what am I to do with this people? God, I need your help in this. He takes the problem to the one who has the power to overcome it. And see, here's the thing with this whole situation right here in, the, in this water scenario. God would have been perfectly just to strike them all down. For their offensive grumbling, for, for their lack of faith, for their lack of gratitude. Like, it, you can almost like, how many times would he have to prove himself over and over to these people? It's not like the work of God was some distant memory. It just happened, you know, months ago, days ago, God has proven himself. That morning as, as manna was on the ground, God had proven himself once again. It wasn't like this was just some obscure action that happened to a few people over there. No, it was to the entire nation. God would have been perfectly just to just strike them all down right then and there. And he would have been glorified. He would have been made known as the glorious, powerful God of creation. But instead, what does God do? What is, how does he instruct Moses? He tells him in verse 5, he says, Hey, go pass before the people. Take some of the elders, the plurality, the, the godly leaders among you. Take them and then get the staff. That symbol of God's power and presence, what he had used as, uh, uh, as a symbol of that as the judgments were carried out, as the Red Sea was split. It wasn't a magic wand, but a symbol of God's presence and power. And then he tells him, hey, I'm going to be at the rock. I'm going to be at the rock, and I want you to strike the rock, to judge the rock. And out from the rock will flow water, the relief, the re rescue from thirst that you seek. And it's exactly what happens. They did so in the sight of the elders, and this is what happens, and the people are uh, they're relieved. They get the water that they are looking for. And then they name the place. These two names, uh, testing and quarreling. That's like a place you want to go visit, right? It's like a battleground marker. 
They name it, and it's a, really, as we just zoom back, this is a scene that has been played out countless times in human history. That's people facing a problem, that's people rebelling, and God coming through once and again. It's happened countless times, and it's happened countless times in our own life. It's happened countless times in the recent weeks. See, these situations are nothing new to the Lord. They're not too much for the Lord. There's nothing new to Him. And you know what? Here's the application. As we just kind of step back here and we say, you know what, God? This is nothing new to you. Here's the first application. Then grumbling gets me nowhere. Grumbling gets me nowhere. See, and we talked about this last week, right? And like you said, there was conviction in the midst of that. Even as I was preaching it, y'all, I was, I was, there was conviction. Last week I was, I was talking about this, and you may remember like my microphone's uh, freaking out, and I'm grumbling in my own heart as I'm preaching. We shouldn't grumble. Like, what in the world? God apparently had more work to do in my own heart on that. But we talked about this last week as we, as, as we come here. Like, why do, we, uh, why do we grumble? Like, what do we gain by grumbling? Why is that such a reflexive uh, uh, response to situations that don't go our way? Because we know it only, it only leads in one direction, in a bad direction. It only takes us away from the Lord to where before we know it, what was just like complaining and grumbling has now become quarreling and anger and, and raging against God and bitterness and to where we've been isolated and angry and we've hurt people and we're all alone because everybody around us has been affected and hurt and destroyed. The grumbling gets us nowhere. It only leads us in a bad situation. It only makes the situation worse, both physically and spiritually. Grumbling uh, physically makes things worse as we hurt ourselves, as we hurt others, as we lead others into the pit. And spiritually speaking, as we grumble, it, it's, it's, it poisons our mind, it hardens our heart, it blinds our eyes to see what is true and what God is doing in front of us. And so if we let this go, grumbling gets us nowhere. But equally true, the application here is that grace has been shown to us. Grace has been shown to us. Did you catch the imagery? Even as I was explaining God's instructions to Moses and the rock and how it would all happen. Did you see the grace of God? They should have been struck down. Same is true for you and I. We should have been struck down for our sin against God. We should have been judged. We should have been uh, beaten. We should have been punished. But instead, for the Israelites, God stood in their midst and had the rock struck. And instead, Christ stood in our place and he was struck for our sin. And he was, he was beaten, brutally murdered. Where the water flowed to relieve their thirst. Waters of living waters leading to eternal life flowed from Christ. See, drawing the, the gospel themes uh, from this chapter, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth these words. It's on the screen for you here, but teaching that church there and instructive for us today, even as we think and want to apply the passage here, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see it, church? You see the gospel on display? 
Do you see the good news, the hope in Jesus Christ? Where the Israelites received the water that they need, we through Christ receive the living water that leads to eternal life for us. So my question for you is, have you drank of Christ this morning? Christ, stand in your place. Were you to be judged? Are you in faith relying on Christ's sacrifice for you that you may have eternal life? See, this is good news for us. This is, as we look to the Lord here, as we see Him at work, this is the gospel. There's no better question to wrestle with today. And to say, where am I with Christ? Is he some nice guy, a God, or is he the one that came and lived the life that I couldn't live? Died the death that I was supposed to die. Gave me what I did not deserve or earn. And that's hope for this life and hope for a life yet to come. Pray that you've wrestled with that and that today you can with confidence and with great humility before the Lord say, thank you, Christ. Thank you for what you've done on my behalf. But see, it doesn't end there. Yes, grace has been shown to us, will continue to be shown for us. There's future grace that uh, is there for us. But here's the third application is that God goes with me. Grumbling gets me nowhere. Grace has been shown to me and God goes with me. You know, as they're asking the question, as we've seen the fulfillment of this, what's the answer then to that question in verse 7? Is the Lord among us or not? How should the Israelites have answered that question? Yeah, of course he is. Of course he is, just as he said he would be. Yes, absolutely, and he has proven it at every step. All they needed to do was look at the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them by day and by night. God was there with them. And that, the, the nearness of God is no less true for us today. As God goes with us, He has promised to be with us in our trials, saying that I will never leave you nor forsake you. As we live a life devoted to the mission, to the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them, as we live sold out to make followers of Christ, as Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, that great promise that is attached to that, where He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So church, the answer to the question here, even as you find yourself asking it yourself in the midst of your situation, that's nothing new to the Lord. You're saying, God, are you with me? Are you among me? And if you're confident in your salvation, then you can with confidence answer this question. Of course he is. Of course he is. He is with me and he is able. But I told you there are two threats in the story, right? There's the threat of water, which God would come through in a supernatural way, but there's also the threat of enemies. And so here's the thing, and here's the second main point that our passage teaches us today, is that my situation is not too much for the Lord. If you're taking notes, write this down. My situation is not too much for the Lord. Join me in verse 8 now, and let's read about the battle that comes. It says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. 
Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now this is God's word for God's people. Here they are again, a familiar scene. They have an enemy that seeks their annihilation. Would God come through again? Absolutely he does. He comes through again for he is near, he is able, he has proven his power yet again. See, the Egyptians were no match for him, right? The most powerful army on the globe at that time was no match for him. Their warriors lay obliterated behind them. And now these Amalekites, they are no match for him as well. They, 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 they were wiped out eventually, but easily overwhelmed. So let me ask, has anybody ever heard of the country of Amalek lately? You're looking at your globe, your map, as you pull out your maps on your phone. Have you heard of the nation or the region of Amalek? No. God's word would come through here. They would be obliterated. So it leads us to ask, like, well, who are these people? Who are, who are these people? Well, ultimately, the Amalekites were the grandson of Esau. And, and here they're the first, of God's, uh, the first people group to attack uh, God's liberated people. We find out that they were, they were actually pretty strategic in, in warfare, using camels to come and, and, uh, and the speed of camels to come and attack their enemies. But to fully understand what is happening here, we have to kind of dial back a little bit and go all the way back to Genesis 12. When God chooses Abraham to be his uh, chosen man and family, that he would be a blessing then to the nations. And in making this covenant or this promise with Abraham, he uh, tells him that I'm going to bless you and you in turn be a blessing to the nations. Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, were to be a light. They were to be a blessing to all uh, who would uh, encounter them. And in turn, those that would bless them, God would bless that nation as well. But the opposite was also true. Those that uh, attacked the people of Israel, those that uh, cursed them or uh, sought their harm, God would also harm them. And so here, these people, these Amalekites are coming after the Lord. And so they are getting uh, the Lord's uh, curse or his attack as well. And so that starts with Abraham. That's at play and say is still even at play uh, today. Abraham has a son and his son's name is Isaac, you can ask uh, the, uh, the elementary students today. They're all there and, and learning about Abraham and Isaac. And, and uh, so you can go ask them some Bible history, some pop quiz questions after the service today. Um, say, it's okay, Pastor Blair told me to quiz you and just see, where they, uh, see what they answer. But Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, right? And they uh, do not get along. Esau turns from the Lord, sells his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob, even though he's a deceiver and a swindler, he is God's chosen man to carry on the inheritance and the blessing of God to the nations. And so we're told in Genesis 36 then that one of Esau's grandsons is this man Amalek. And so you come then to Exodus in chapter 17, our passage today, this is the first time then that they come and physically attack the people of God. 
But the battles wouldn't stop here. Later in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 15, King Saul would, would battle against them. And several hundred years later, King Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4 would also battle these people generation after generation, we're told here in, in Exodus 17. And their final uh, annihilation, where they would be blotted out from history, interestingly enough, is in the time of the book of Esther. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, if you're not, I would encourage you to go and read it. And you see the divine providence of God there. The preservation of his people. Whereas uh, uh, Haman, who is a, a, a descendant of uh, Amalek here, who is seeking the annihilation of the Jewish people in those days, and God providentially uses Queen Esther to preserve his people. And incidentally, then in Esther 7 and chapter 9, those people go to war, and Haman and his descendants are wiped away and blotted off to where they're never heard from again. Generation after generation, throughout your Old Testament scriptures, you see the promises of God coming true. God is true to his word. There is no enemy that is too much for the Lord, church. So, all that in the midst of this passage here, all that in the midst here, this long history of antagonism, because it was ultimately they were at war with God. They hated the Lord and His purposes. And so this is just the first battle between these two people groups. And as we come back here to Exodus 17, you've got to kind of put things into perspective here. This is just a liberated people group. They're trying to just figure out how are we going to survive? How are we going to eat? Do you think they've had time to assemble an army? Appoint generals and to train up people and to make sure people are armed and now they have strategies for warfare and things? No, they're disorganized. And so here they're told that Joshua, the first time he's introduced, he's appointed to lead the men and go and fight. Joshua would later become uh, the heir apparent to Moses. He would lead the people of God into the promised land. The book of Joshua is written about him. But they haven't organized, and so he's commissioned to go find men and to fight. Moses then, as the spiritual leader, he takes Aaron, his right-hand man, and this other guy, Hur, who we're really unfamiliar about, an aide or assistant of, uh, of some sort. They go up to the mountain, and they pray then. And they, as they're praying, what is he holding up above his head? The staff. Remember that symbol of the power and presence of God. And so what happens as Moses is up there, as he's praying, as he's holding his hands up, what, what happens? If it's holding his hands up, they prevail. They win. They succeed. They advance against the enemy. And when his arms grew weary and he put them down, what happens? The Amalekites succeed. They prevail. They advance. But instead, they go. And so Aaron and Hur come and help him. And that holding it up above his head is really symbolic in a couple different ways. It's symbolic of their dependence upon the Lord to come through. Think of it like a small child. They, when they want the safety of their parents, what do they do? They run up to you and they go, right? Because they depend upon you. They know where safety is. This is the same reason why we lift our hands in worship and dependence upon the Lord. I'm saying, God, I need you. I'm safe with you. We lift our hands in humble dependence upon the Lord. They lift their hands in prayer, saying, God, we depend upon you. Second way, symbolic is in the power of God. The staff was, like I said, not a magic wand, but a symbol of the presence and power of God. And so as they are up there saying, God, you've got to come through or we're, we're, we're through. It, it, these, this enemy is going to, to, to come through and you've come through over and over and over again. So please do it again, Lord. Do you think his hands got tired after a while? Just even me, for those few moments there, my shoulders are starting to get weary. 
Should we have a little competition, y'all, and hold up our Bibles above our head and see who can hold it the longest? No? Some of y'all with those little pocket Bibles are thinking, yeah, I got this. I, yeah. Those with big study Bibles and things are like, I'd be toast, right? No, we won't do that. We won't do that. But it is symbolic here, isn't it? You know, they're dependent upon the power of God, and then they succeed. God loves to have us in these scenarios. He loves to have us in these situations where it's like, Lord, you have to come through again. You've proven yourself over and over and over. There, there is no enemy that is any match for you. And so here again, they find themselves in this place, and until finally the enemy is overwhelmed and victory is achieved. And like we've seen so many times in the book of Exodus, as we see here, they're told to record it so that they would not forget it, so that God would be worshipped. Right? When we forget the works of God, what do we do? We grumble, we complain, but when we remember them, the work of God sparks our worship of God. And so they're told to write it down, which is what they do. Moses builds this altar, we're told, which is where they would come to sacrifice before the Lord and, and to express this worship. And then they, uh, they name the place, like they name the place of the rock. They name it the altar at the battlefield. And what do they name it? The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner, my signpost, my symbol, my flag. It's the Lord, not any other uh, created object. It wasn't a tree. It wasn't a rock. It wasn't an eagle. It wasn't a snake. It wasn't the sun or the moon. No, the Lord, Yahweh, was the banner. He was the one banner that they would fly over them. The enemy had raised its hand against the Lord in opposition to the Lord and was now a sworn enemy of God. Redemption, this is a timely word for us today. See, as Christ followers, we have one banner that we fly. The Lord is our banner. No, no political allegiances, no school allegiances, no colors of our favorite team are higher or should receive more adulation or praise or allegiance from us. It is the Lord, church, who is our banner. And in these days where everybody is divided, where we are known more by our political allegiances or our team allegiances or where we stand on certain uh, issues, there is one banner among we who profess Christ that must be raised the highest. See, Christ gets our worship. He gets our entire allegiance. It is Christ who is our King. It is Christ who is our Messiah. And so we wave His banner. The Lord is our banner. But even as we do it, even as we plant this banner in the ground, even as we make this declaration, we can know these things. Even as we draw some application out of here, we can know these things that antagonists are normal. As the Lord is our banner, antagonists are, are normal. God's people were following Him in faithfulness. They had seen Him come through, and now unprovoked, these, these uh, Amalekites come to seek their destruction. And as Christ followers, as the people of God, you see this all across the pages of Scripture. Antagonists are normal. We will always be those attacked by those that oppose God in His ways. Always has been and always will be. Jesus Himself told us to expect it. He told us to, to actually that we would be blessed because of it. When we are persecuted for following Him, if Christ faced it, of course we would. The Apostle Peter told us in 1 Peter that, that uh, we're not to be surprised by it. But to make sure that we are, if we are being antagonized, if we are being oppressed, if we are being persecuted, to be that it is for the right reasons. 
It is for following Christ and taking a stand for gospel purposes and not because of our sin or because of some secondary issue. And so this is normal. It is normal for the Christian life, and we don't have to take it personally. We don't have to fight back. We don't, you know, those that uh, see things differently than us, those that uh, are antagonistic because of our faith are not our enemy. They are somebody to love and to pray for. There's somebody at odds with the Lord, somebody who needs Christ. And so even as we respond in grace and truth and love, maybe God would use us to change their heart, to see the gospel at play, and to see the effect that God has had in our own life. But as we plant this banner, as we make this declaration about our own life, here's a second application, that biblical community is necessary for victory. Biblical community is necessary for victory. Moses could not have done this on his own. The warriors could not have done it on their own. It was all a work of God's people working together. Moses had physical limits. The people uh, could not uh, fight against this uh, more organized, more strategic enemy. The same is true for the Christian. None of us are an island. None of us are, 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 are capable of living separately, but rather the Bible uses these terms of, uh, of the church as a community, as the people of God, as a congregation, as a people, as a body, a human body that loves and supports and forgives and encourages and exhorts and rebukes and helps and forgives one another among all kinds of things. But like the human body, we are all necessary and interdependent. You need the people of God in your life, and they need you. You have gifts and talents and things that they need, and they, too, in turn for you. And so, like uh, Paul would point out in 1 Corinthians 12, that a body part that has been severed, I think of a foot that has been uh, severed from the body, and just there it is useless. It cannot run. It cannot even walk. It can't carry any weight. It is just sitting there, but attached to an ankle that is attached to a leg and the rest of the human body, a foot is capable of all kinds of things and it is working together. And so too is a Christian who is cut off from community, lifeless and unable to do anything. Aaron and her were there to support Moses as he grew weary. Our brothers and sisters are here to walk with us especially in times of difficulty, especially when we are feeling the limits of our, of, our, of our faith, as we are feeling the limits of our physical needs. God has placed these people, uh, those in your small group, the brothers and sisters here at this church, to walk with you, to hold your arms up as you feel the weight of life and the limits of your capabilities. Biblical community is necessary for victory. Here's a third application. As you plant this banner, as you, as you follow the Lord, as you say, Christ, you are my banner. Here's the third point. Godly leaders will point the way. Godly leaders will point the way in the things that they said, in the things that they say. Take Moses' example, for uh, example, as he holds up his hands. See, they, he's holding it up, and what is he telling the people of God? That we are dependent upon God. God must come through. It is His power that will lead us to victory. Godly leaders are saying the same thing over and over. They have a constant message in every situation. This isn't new to the Lord. This isn't too much for the Lord. God is near. God is able. He's proven His power over and over and over again, and He will do it now. And so godly leaders are saying it over and over like a broken record. It's their constant message because it's the constant message of the Scriptures. 
It's the solid foundation that we live upon. It's our only hope in this life. And so godly leaders of our day aren't holding up a stick, but they're holding up the scriptures. They're holding up the word of God that leads us and guides us. They're leading us. They are men and women who are leading us in prayer and in worship. There are those like Moses who's taking this, these things to the Lord. And so their rally cry before the battle is, Follow the Lord. He's near. He's able. It's the same cry during the midst of the battle. When life is the hardest, when you're feeling squeezed at the, uh, at the most uh, uh, pressure of time. God is near, God is able, and it is the same message after as well. And so, sure, this message is for those who lead in the church, yes. Yes, yes, but this is also in our homes. See, parents, we lead our kids in this same way. We point the way, saying God is near, God is able, that they would never doubt it, no matter how old they are. Let the cares of their little heart begin to place in them. Let them see your confident dependence in the power of God. The nearness of God in your life. So their teenage cares and, 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 and their adult cares. Let them know that this is how you lead. Husbands, lead your wives in this way. Lead your wives in, in confident dependence upon the Lord. Lord. Point the way in prayer and worship. Be men. Be men who are, are chosen for how they battle in prayer. Just as Joseph chose these men for battle, be the type of man that is chosen for how he battles in prayer because of his confident dependence upon the Lord. Let us be known as this. How different would our homes be? Would our city be? Would our nation be? If we were men courageous in prayer. Listen to these words here. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy there. In 1 Timothy 2, in the church there at Ephesus, where he was the pastor, he says this, the verses on the screen here, he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. It's a counter to us lifting our hands to fight and to get angry and to lash out. Let us instead be men who are dependent upon the Lord, lifting our hands in prayer in our homes, in our workplaces, in the church. See, guys, here's, here's the thing. Prayer is the most manly activity you could do today. Prayer is the most godly activity that you could devote your life to. Of saying, I am dependent upon the Lord. I am confident in His power that He is near and listening and hearing me and He is able to come through. One definition of true manhood is a man who is devoted to prayer. It was for the people of Israel. They devoted themselves to prayer. It's the same for us today. We pray and we watch God at work. We watch Him coming through. We watch Him changing our own heart. We watch Him changing the situation as we see God proving His power over and over again. As we cry out to Him, He proves His faithfulness yet again. He meets with us on the mountain. He does His work in our own life. And we'll begin to see this as we devote ourselves to this. Every time we feel squeezed. Every time we face another threat, another crisis, every day as we wake up, every time we find ourselves in the midst asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? Will He come through this time? And every time the answer is, yes, God is near and God is able. God is near and God is able. And so every time we come to these familiar scenarios in our life, let us be a people of God who proceed in faith by the grace of God. Knowing that this, whatever I'm facing, whatever is on my plate today, whatever situation I find myself in, it is nothing new for the Lord. 
and neither is it too much for him. But his power has been proven over and over and over again, and this will not be any different. Would you pray with me, church? Father in heaven, uh, these are good words for us. This is a good reminder for us. And so, Lord, we, we can listen to this, we can be challenged by it, we can be convicted this morning, and we know now, Lord, that uh, yet yeah, we need your help. We need your, your grace and your mercy. It's easy to acknowledge it, Lord, but, uh, uh, but this afternoon is going to hit. Monday morning is going to hit. And so we need the help of your spirit. We need the help of of your word, the guidance of your word, and we need the support of your people, Lord. And even as we say those those three things, God, how gracious you are to give us all that, that you haven't left us alone, but you've provided everything that we need. And and so, Lord, we we, we come asking for help, and we come uh, with great hope as well. Hope that you will come through even this week. And so as we sing this closing song, God, would you, uh, would you make this a prayer of our heart? Would you make this a, just a, a reminder of all the ways that you've been faithful? Would this be a confession, God, as well, as we realize that, man, Lord, we've, we've, we've distrusted you. We tried to do things on our, uh, on our own timetable, in our own strength. Look where that's gotten us. So, God, would you, by your spirit now, would you continue to minister to us, changing us, convicting us, using the word of God to enlighten us. But we worship you now. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand?